Hi everyone, this is Roberto from Czar Power, and I just want to let you know that in May of 2024, I am scheduling a research trip to Georgia for 15 days to see many of the historical sites that I have covered or will cover on the history of Sacramento, Georgia, as well as many opportunities to learn more about the nation in a deeper sense than I could just sitting at home reading books all day. Um, this is where I'd like to ask you for help because I'm currently saving up for this trip to ensure that I can visit as much as possible with the time that I have and come away with many research opportunities in different libraries, museums, and historical sites. However, I need some support to ensure that I can visit these sites, especially the ones that are harder to get to, such as the ones in Svenetia, which is deep in the mountain valleys, or it's any other place that would be kind of hard to get to. I will thank people for their bonus support as well. And the History of Sacramento, Georgia will also have, at every $100 donated, we'll have a short bonus episode based off of different locations in Georgia that I probably won't talk much about in the main narrative, but would make a nice bonus episode for anybody willing to hear, as well as an audio journal that I will upload on a day-by-day -day basis to look into the journey and the things that I'm doing while I'm abroad. And I really am saying now, thank you for all your support and making a dream come true. And I look forward to recounting my experiences to you on the history of Sacramento, Georgia, and teach you more about the wonderful nation. You can donate on tinyurl slash Sacramento trip, S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O trip, T-R-I-P, or you can follow the link in, or you can follow the link in the episode description. Thank you so much ahead of time, and I can't wait to tell you more about everything. I'm Roberto. And I'm Brendan, and together we're ranking the Russian rulers from Rurik to Putin. This week, we're covering nobody because we're covering uh, a cultural topic that is near and dear to the Russian soul. And that is, of course, the Nutcracker. The ballet. Not the story. The story is German. Yes. So we are covering Nutcracker, or as it's called in Russian, Shelkunchik, which just means fairy ballet, and it was composed by a Russian composer we may all know on the show, Pyotr Tchaikovsky. So, Brendan, how would people know Pyotr Tchaikovsky on our show? Tchaikovsky is, of course, the famous composer of the 1812 Overture. If you don't know what the 1812 Overture is, this should refresh your mind. And for the vast majority of people, that's all they need to hear. And they recognize that song instantly. Because it has cannons as an instrument. Yes, using cannons as an instrument. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, I would say that the vast majority of people who have never seen the Nutcracker can't name a single song. 
once they hear a couple notes of some of the songs in here, they'll recognize them immediately because if you've ever watched a Christmas movie, they are everywhere. Isn't that the truth? Like, we just opened up this episode with The Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy, which is one of my favorite pieces in this whole ballet. And as Brendan would tell you, I spent hours trying to learn on the bells. Yeah, the bells is... Wait, I don't have them here. We are gonna watch the ballet, and we will be back with our thoughts. You ready, Brendan? Yeah, let's go. Alrighty, the curtains go up, the lights go dim, and the music begins. Audience claps, the music dies down, the dancers bow, flowers go everywhere, and a curtain falls. So, Brendan, how was the show? Well, like I mentioned before, The Nutcracker is absolutely rife with iconic, universally recognizable musical pieces. Tchaikovsky can certainly write a theme. However, through no fault of its own, I personally dislike ballet there's some ballet pieces i i like because i took you know a lot of art history classes in high school and college i'm familiar with some of the dances from swan lake and uh i like four little swans i think that is a very cool ballet dance but generally i find ballet to be boring gasp brendan how are we co-hosts how can i live with this with you finding ballet boring when i live for it Huh. As you can tell, I love ballet, and this is one of my favorite ones to watch. I watch it every year. Sometimes live, sometimes on YouTube, because YouTube is free. But And just so we can make, make it known, the version we watched was by the Astrakhan Ballet Troupe, which is in, for those of you who don't know your geography, is in Kazakhstan, which will be integrated into the Russian Empire with, in quite a few czars. So. Yeah, Um. and the fact that they were Kazakh ballet performers is uh quite interesting considering the racial undertones of the original ballet well not undertones more like overtones although it's not central to the story or anything it's just really the dance of the sweets basically yeah the dance of the sweets all there is there is one character in the beginning um we'll talk about which really just reflects the time of uh when it was made there's a lot of debates on whether or not you can update ballets or stories or players or what have you 
I'm of the opinion that you absolutely can, but you know, I, I don't know when what order Roberto wants to have this discussion in terms of topics. I mean, we can get there when we get there. Yeah. I don't want to start out with the negatives or anything like that. Let's start out with the positives, and then we can go to the negatives, and then back into the positives. Okay. Well, I won't have much to say on this one, so you take the lead in this one, buddy. So for me, the positives, as Brendan mentioned earlier, is basically the dances and how and how fluid they are, and how you know how hard the dancers work in regards to making it you know something traditional, but something that is their own. The Russians have a sense of trying to make ballet more traditional because they don't want to change what is good. And you'll see that a lot with a lot of different places where some people will react negatively in regards to changing costuming or changing how the dances are done. I mean, we might as well just go into it. The dance of the sweets, for one. You know, you, you have different styles of dances well, even long before that, um, so in the story of the of the ballet, it begins with basically a Christmas party where um, Masha, who is the little girl in the story, her godfather, uh, what's his name? His name is Drosselmeyer. He's a German magician, inventor, Drosselmeyer. In the story, he comes in and he has all these wonderful, I guess you could say automatons. He has you know dolls that dance and uh, i mean one thing i did like is i liked how the choreographers had the ballet dancers imitate the sort of jerky robotic movements of uh what an actual like life-size toy would look mm-hmm. like i mean i thought that was very charming i know it was great and seeing that guy do the split multiple times was just like dude mm-hmm. yeah maybe dude my legs. i was like this hurts me inside but you're doing this like it's nothing oh my gosh and one of those characters was sort of like meant to be a very orientalist representation of an arab so he had like dark skin but it was done with makeup he had like an aladdin vest on and i think he had a he had or had like a fez or a very large turban no he had a fez basically if you mix abu and aladdin together that's what you get yeah, and it was very reminiscent of Aladdin. It made me pause and like ask when this was made, because eighteen ninety two. But no, no, the costume twenty twenty. Okay, so yeah, so it reminded me a lot of Aladdin, which is in itself, despite being a Disney classic that was ruined by Will Smith in multiple ways. It's uh, well, the term is Orientalist. It's a it's a certain eurocentric viewpoint towards the east broadly speaking well the what i saw in regards to to that toy was that it was just that monkey toy that you know that has like the symbols and everything so it was like i thought that was no this was the one that was doing splits in the air no that was then that, that was just like a little jester okay whatever well, yeah, I know there was a Harlequin toy. Yeah, there was a Harlequin, there was, and there was a lady dancing, and then there was the more Arab Aladdin-looking one, which, yeah. is, which is supposed to be the monkey that does the jumping. Right, which I guess makes it even worse, but whatever. In the story, um, you know, we have all these, like, dances, and Masha gets very attached to one called, well, a Nutcracker, which her brother breaks and uh Drosselmeyer wait no I'm getting the ETA Hoffman story in the her brother breaks it 
yeah, Drosselmeyer fixes it. Um, she like pledges to love it forever, yada yada. Then, you know, the lights darken and then we get to the war between the rats and the toy soldiers. Yes, Masha's going off to bed and then the rats start, you know, the, the mice. The mice start micing around, causing mayhem, stealing Swiss cheese because mice love Swiss cheese, don't you know? Yeah, the prop they have is like a giant block of you know you know triangular wedge Swiss cheese, which is like a t- such as like a Tom and Jerry thing. I mean, but it's great because that's what I just assume all mice want mm-hmm. is a massive block of Swiss cheese. When in actuality, they prefer peanut butter. True. True. Yeah. So anyway, there's a war between the mice and the toy soldiers. Then the king, the mice comes out has a duel with the Nutcracker, um, which Masha helps out with by throwing her slipper at him. And then Mouse King dies because, or the Rat King dies because the Nutcracker stabs it. And the Nutcracker transforms into a handsome prince. And they have a little dance um, where Masha also like... Masha gets shrunk to toy size. Yeah, shrunk to toy size. But they also like age her up and they have an older ballerina do it because I I can't imagine that what the uh, older ballerina is doing is very easy for the younger one to do. It's it's at that moment when Drosselmeyer comes in and basically he transforms them into you know the prince and the older masha maria let's call her maria yeah maria so yeah she gets shrunk down to toy size and they go to like toyland i guess you could call it yeah they they go to the toyland or the nutcracker's kingdom and she's trying to show him around if you've ever played what's the what's the board game with the candy candyland yeah candyland if you've ever played candyland then yeah you do you know you get the idea of what it's supposed to look like. Well, it's literally called the Magic Castle in the Land of Sweets. Right, yeah, the Magic Castle. So it's literally Candyland. <laughs> yeah, and the sort of, I guess you could say, second half of the ballet takes place in this where every kind of sweet gets their own dance. So there's a coffee dance, a tea dance. These simultaneously represent cultures of the world and um, their respective candy. Yeah, so you start off with chocolate, which is Spanish, which makes sense because who brought chocolate over? Spain. Yeah, Spain. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I, don't, I mean, judging how they represent other cultures, I wouldn't want them to represent like Aztecs. That would that would probably be even way way more offensive. Yeah. Well, the chocolate uh, dance is just your Spanish flamenco in ballet form. Nothing raunchy. There's a tea dance, which is represented by China, which, again, these are Kazakh dancers. They have very East Asian features. Like half of them do anyway. This is in Kazakhstan. Others are what we would call Caucasian, which I know it gets confusing because we're talking about the Eastern Europe, but bear with us here. So just to kind of go in order of what the dances are, it's chocolate, which is flamenco in Spain. Then you have the coffee dance, which is Arabic. Not any specific country in the entire Arab world, which, you know, it's not a small land area. As I like to call it, it's Arabesque, where they just take all the fun stuff that they like from Arab culture and just mash it into one. Well, yeah, yeah, Orientalist. Orientalist. So they get, like, you know, the sensual belly dancing for the coffee dance. That depends on the production. I don't think they was too gratuitous this time because they let the ballerinas cover up a bit. Well, also Kazakhstan's a mostly, like, Muslim country, too. Mm. That's fair enough. But in, like, plays that I've seen in Russia, it is 
very sensual, very, it's very sexualized. And what I've heard people say before is that most of the plays for children, this is for the fathers in the audience. Ah, I see. Yeah, and you know, ballet is already sexual, but it's like... Oh god, I hate my bitch wife. I can't wait to go to the Nutcracker and see the belly dancers. And then, um, so that's pretty much, you know, they allowed them to cover up, but it's still representing, you know, belly dancing. It has like the, you know, belly dancing is an art form. I will say that. But it's just, you know, the way they do the costuming and everything, it, it's still like, they were using bodysuits, but it, they were pretty much still wearing like the traditional or like the stereotypical, you know, hip with like bra. The, yeah, the hair and pants in the past, as Brendan liked to call, call them while we were watching it, the pastels, or the pa- pasties. Pasties. Yeah, the pasties. Yeah, yeah. They, they were like obviously put there to emphasize the breasts to like, I don't know, give the audience an idea of what they signify. Yeah. Because they couldn't sexualize it in another way. So that's how they chose to represent it. Yeah. So they're using pasties. And that's pretty much how they were sexualizing, you know, the women in the coffee dance, which is, you know, a lot of them are already being sexualized in the show itself because it's a ballet. And, you know, this is like a common, very common theme. Like we, we touched on this in the Medea episode of History of Suckard Villa, Georgia on... um or recovered Ardenautica by Apollonius of Rhodes and Medea by uh, Sophocles, I think? Or was it Euripides? Euripides. Yeah, Euripides, right. Where foreign women are portrayed as temptresses that seduce the hero and also may or may not be possessing of, you know, unearthly powers. Yeah, so that's basically the coffee dance in its entirety. It's just a sexual dance. To please the fathers in the audience who have to struggle through this because their kids want to watch it. And then you get the tea dance. Yeah, the tea dance uh, represents China. And they like... This is probably like the the one dance that gets the most, you know, discourse in regards to how it portrays people. Yeah. Like this one did, had, you know, had the dancers dressed up as rice farmers. Just doing a fan dance. So they they had like wide brim straw hats. For Christ's sake, they were basically only missing, like, slanty eyes and buck teeth. But, yeah, basically, so they have... I'm not sure... I don't know what this outfit is called. I can only name the, uh, the like, the wide rim straw hat. Yeah, so they have they have these robes. Okay, I, I guess these are called Dwanda. Dwanda. It's it's not formal clothing. Um, it's, it's something that, like, if you watch... If you watch some Western movie about the cultural revolution this is how they portray every peasant in the movie in that movie mm-hmm. so basically they were portrayed as chinese yeah, extra- rice farmers yeah yeah extraordinarily you know you know extraordinarily stereotypical chinese people and like like i mentioned they're basically only missing like slanty eyes and buck teeth when it comes to this portrayal and after that i i actually forget what's the next dance after tea well i did want to talk about a bit about the tea dance first um so basically a lot of this is mostly in the US and more progressive European nations that do cover you know who who do portray the nutcracker in the in their theaters and ballets. Um instead of like a you know, the, the dance that they have with the costuming, which tends to be very stereotypical, they do more of a like a dragon dance during this scene. So it doesn't seem like it's a lot of like stereotypical dances because it was just like a lot of like trying to be acrobatic, like the Chinese acrobats and everything that you would see in like 
old westerns and all that. Yeah, and I would think like another thing I should mention is that the music is very some it's sort of like a shorthand for China. It's like if you that that's like a musical riff that has become associated with China even though it doesn't really necessarily have much to do with Chinese music, traditional Chinese music. So it has like a very like I don't know, the instrument they use is like extremely an extremely bright string instrument of some kind that's isn't plucked. It, isn't it a celesta? No, I think the celesta the celesta is like a bell instrument. It, okay. I know that comes up in the dance of the sugar plum fairy. Yeah. Which we're going which we're getting to. Interesting how you mentioned that some try to update it by including like a dragon dance because that actually is part of Chinese culture. It's not Chinese culture filtered through um, a Russian lens. Yeah, so they're trying to making it, you know, if it's going to be a traditional dance, they want to make it actually traditional. And, you know, and it's, and that way it's, you're not making any costume because you just have like an act, you know, the dragon cover on top and you just do your things with that. Um, it's gotten some feedback from, you know, more traditionalists in a ballet spear where, you know, that's, you know, we've done this for, we've done it this way for centuries. We can't change it now. And it's like, wait, well, you can change it as long as you don't change the music. Yeah, I really don't like buy this argument whatsoever. If you don't like the changes that a particular production does, watch another one. I mean, yeah, there's, it's not like there's only one production in the whole world of this. Yeah, and the fact that, well, you can't update it, well... My, in my opinion, first off, it's being changed anyway. You know, it's going to slowly evolve over time. Some traditional, like, elements will stay, but this is how stories and culture evolves in uh, human societies. Like, you you might, you know, the other night I was reading, um, I was just looking at the Wikipedia page for Jack and the Beanstalk because, I don't know, it came up. And I was just like looking at, oh, um, what are the theories of the origins behind this? And uh, comparative mythologists and folklorists have identified it as being like the boy steals the ogre's treasure. And there's like with any sort of piece of art, but especially in folklore, um, which was the primary mode of artistic expression in terms of storytelling prior to the invention of the printing press and all these things that let us more perfectly reproduce a previous iteration of a work of art or a story, it was told orally. And the storytellers put their own spin on it. And they kept some things and they tossed some other things. There's nothing wrong with that because that's that's the cultural heritage of the entirety of humanity prior to the invention or introduction of the printing press. I mean, it still happens today on, like, urban legends and, like, the internet. Yeah, and it's, like, one of those things where now that we have it all recorded down, it's not like you can go, like, to village, from village to village. And, like, the and the story changes with each retelling. Now it's like we all have a standardized version of things, and you can't deviate from the standardized version. And I'm like, thank you, capitalism, for ruining the evolution of how things are told. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you take a look at, there's still ways to do it. You can say, this is Creative Commons. Anybody who wants to riff on this story or whatever, feel free. Some artists and musicians do that. The difficulty is the fact that then you're not getting royalties and then it's hard to make a living as an artist. But some people do that. H.P. Lovecraft famously did that. He encouraged his friends to write stories about 
the Cthulhu mythos that he invented. And he, in turn, used characters and concepts that his friends came up with. Yeah, and and his friends did a much better job of doing of working in his world than he did. And his friends were much better writers. Absolutely. Now, moving away from the tea dance, we're going to the Russian dance, which is mm-hmm. probably one of the most well-known songs in this whole ballet. It's a... Yeah. Yeah, anytime there's a movie, I distinctly remember the trailer for The Water Horse, I'm pretty sure, used this song. I don't know why. It's used in everything. Yeah, it's used in everything. Part of the reason is because uh, copyright. There's no copyright in any of this. That's Woo! the thing. <laughs> Which is why we use it. <laughs> Tchaikovsky died a long time ago and uh, copyrights expired. Yeah, well, we'll talk about Tchaikovsky's death and the theories behind it. Oh, really? I didn't know there were like different theories behind it. Oh, there's two. Okay. Well, we talk about them, but yeah. Um, but yeah, Tchaikovsky was in dead for a while, so I feel free to use his music. And mm-hmm. same with any other music I use. If the person's dead, I feel fine to use it. Well, their estate's going to come after you if you if it's not in the public domain. What, the Russian estate? Yeah, good point. <laughs> oh yeah, and also the the Russian dance is... At this point, Putin is definitely going to let us in the country. Oh uh, yeah, you know. <laughs> and we all know, you know, the American authorities are very interested in enforcing Russian copyright. Absolutely. Um, so this is also known as the c- caramel dance. Caramel, caramel. Is there a difference between the two? Uh, there's no difference. It's simply different pronunciation. It's the same I've heard, candy. I've heard caramel is like you when it's hard and caramel is when it's soft, but... That no. sounds like horseshit to me, sorry. Oh, well. well. Anyways, the Russian dance is a caramel dance, and they're dressed in traditional Slavic folk costumes. Mm-hmm. You know, if the lady with the big triangular yeah. hat or tiara thing, the man dressed mm-hmm. up as a peasant, and that's pretty much it. Not It's, mm-hmm. you know, they can't really stereotype themselves, yeah. you know? Um, yeah, I mean, it's yeah, it's notable that the, Rus- that the Russian composer gave the Russian dance, like... One of the more one of the more memorable songs. Let's say. well, Tchaikovsky hated the Nutcracker, so I don't think he did it on purpose. I mean, I would also come to hate it after a while. Like Maurice Sendak hated the Where the Wild Things Are. Then we have the dance of the Marzipan, mm. or the the Danish dance. I mean, I don't. The Danish dance wasn't really memorable, honestly. Yeah, most of these are weren't memorable for good reasons yeah um and then you know we we skip we're gonna skip over a few things this is like not memorable it's just kind of like all right this is taking forever when is it getting to the good Mm -hmm. part and then we get to the good part with the penultimate suite called the pas de deux or the pas de ducks or basically the one with the dance of the sugar plum fairy yep which is the important one (laughs) it starts off with a dance between the prince and maria maria and it's kind of like this very beautiful music and everything and it is this is my second favorite piece of this whole suite what did you think about the dance between the two of them uh i don't really think much of anything about it i don't like ballet there we go that's right and that's Brendan's opinion but i you know i really enjoyed it i think it's a very beautiful slow melodic music it's one of those pieces that if you were listening to it you're gonna get very you know, you're going to get tears in your eyes if you're actively enjoying it. Um, and then you get to Tarantella, which is the prince dancing by himself. 
and you're like, oh, you know, this is it. This is what I need to wait for. <laughs> and then you get the dance to the Sugar Plum Fairy, which is the one that everyone loves in this in this um, ballet, which is basically, you know, it's my favorite piece. It's just musically, it's my favorite just because it gets stuck. It's a brain worm. Yeah, so. it's a brain worm. For sure. Well, it sort of reminds me. Um. Well, whatever. What were we gonna say next? I can. I can push that. I, have, I, I have nothing. So go ahead. Okay. So I don't think I explain myself adequately why I dislike ballet, and it's something that's been bouncing out around in my head a lot lately. And I remember reading something a long time ago. So we typically associate classical music with sitting politely and contemplating the meaning of what we're listening to when classical music was at the height of its popularity that's not actually how the audience behaved there were drunken there was drunken revelry fist fights would break out it's kind of like oh shakespeare is so boring well here's the thing uh back in the day a shakespeare play was a rowdy affair where people would throw things at the actors you know boo you suck get out of here boo you suck like they were there for like the penal the penultimate where um scene where i mean in the scottish play where uh the you know the guy who cannot whose name should not be spoken is beheaded in a sword fight like you know we have all this academic class appreciation for the classics but they were parties back in the day when all this came out. And works like The Nutcracker or Holst's The Planets or Mozart's Die Flute, these were things that were popular with children. And uh, it was like going to see the Minions Rise of Gru with your parents at the movie theater. That was the Which is a great film. Yeah, great film. I'm I'm glad they included the origin of the fart gun. I really needed to see that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm so uh, happy for that. <laughs> exactly. And that's my problem with it now because we've lost what music meant to people when it was actually originally being performed. You can still find it when in like contemporary festivals that are popular um because those are like the difference between that and a party is usually pretty like thin uh well there's also the fact that it's not particularly participatory you know booing cheering clapping throwing things these are all elements of participation you can clap yeah you can clap yeah these are all elements of participation there's some of it in the modern day and going back to like the earliest iterations of music if you know think about it what's what's gospel what's gospel music well it grew out of call and responses it's participatory yeah exactly there's clapping there's singing along in a chorus you know if uh if you you know sang ring around the rosy with your friends when your friends when you were a kid well guess what that's how all music was done in the olden days but I, I do understand what you mean with it like not being very participatory and i can see that being from the evolution of the times where basically you know shakespeare was meant for the rowdy crowds of england you know of london wherever the heck he was by the time by the 1890s when you know the nutcracker came out you know this is very like high prestige thing for like the 
nobility of anywhere. You know, they're all related anyways. The nobility and the bourgeoisie of the Russian of Russian society. Yeah, and like, you know, you have to be nice and fanciful when you were there. You know, you have to be uptight and strict and have that large stick up your ass about everything. I mean, we, we touched on this in the Balalaika episode when the Balalaika, it, it, it transformed from something that was associated with peasants. And th- this was a period in time where Russia was becoming very entranced with Western culture. Like, I, of course, Italian operas were huge everywhere and all over and of course ballet i think was also ballet is a western export yeah ballet is a western export. it came from uh, france and as one of my favorite no, lines no it came during the italian renaissance but it was developed more in france and russia yeah so as i like to say the russians may not have invented ballet but they perfected it exactly and again we talked about this with yeah the the, the balalaika you know, the balalaika was really not appreciated again until there was a sort of rise in interest in making quintessentially Russian music because everybody was into romanticism and, na- and romantic nationalism at the time. You know, this is around the time when Nietzsche was writing about, you know, what's what's quintessentially German. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what is the nature of Germany? And you know, when they got interested in these questions, they turned to their folk traditions, you know, and things like this, it's you're more, forced to more sit. westernized. Yeah, you're, it feels like you're in a church service. You're forced to sit there and not participate. What's, you know, what's a balalaika in a peasant setting? It's a self-made, unregulated, unstandardized thing that's simply passed down through oral tradition, typically, and, you know, performed in these you know you used to perform these very body satirical songs yeah and as i mentioned earlier like everything evolved and it became standardized and you mentioned it about a like episode everything became standardized and you kind of lose that semblance of i i think you lose that semblance of control uh over like what is art because you can't say this is my balalaika and have it sound different than you know, if I have a balalaika and it sounds different because it has two yeah. strings compared to your balalaika, it has like 18 strings. Mm-hmm. Like, Yeah, it represents like, a shift of cultural power. Yeah, because basically it's the peasant makes something cool. Mm. And then the, the noble is like, oh, that looks cool. Let me see it. And he's like, I made this. This is mine now. Yoink. Yeah. I like that. But just to kind of start wrapping this up, overall, like your opinions on the music i just want and i know you're more of a music person at least like what do you did you enjoy yeah, the music i at generally least? dislike dance there's not a whole lot of dance that i will not want to sleep through music is different um i am a music lover of almost all kinds i can't you know i can't provide too much in-depth analysis of the whole work i mean there's not much we can do i just wanted to talk about it i will rec- i will put in the link for the actual ballet if you want to see the one we watched Mm-hmm. Um, so that way you guys can all go in and, and be like, all right, cool. This is the one that they watched. Let's watch it too. If you really want to, I recommend just, you do watch it. You know, if you have kids, watch it with your kids. Um, if you just want to listen to the music, I listen to the Nutcracker Ballet every November, December. So it is a fun time for me because I really like the sugar, dance the sugar plum fairy. So it gets me in the mm-hmm. mood for Christmas. Yeah. And it's basically what this is. Mm-hmm. This is a quintessential Christmas theme. And in the 
and it's one of the most memorable pieces of you know extant Russian culture, where you might not know it's you know it came from Russia, but you at least know of it, which is you know different than most things we will be covering on this show. This is probably this is probably the most recognizable thing we're ever going to cover on this show, other than Putin <laughs> and Stalin. True enough. True enough. I will be linking this, and you know one thing you mentioned to me when you mentioned earlier, you know. Basically, classical music used to be ragers of people getting drunk. It just reminds me of that meme, you know, of all these guys, you know, me, me and the homies listening to, like, Mozart back in 17, you know, or Beethoven back in, like, the 1700s. And it's like, when Mozart drops, you know, the symphony yeah. number nine, it's like, burn it and it's like, oh, and they're, like, just dancing. Like, it's like yeah. a hip-hop or like club scene i'm like this is great i like this that's what I was, that's what i've been imagining the whole time yeah um I, I i mean again are the sort of i don't know the prissy the prissiness hold on whatever what do you what do you call it you take something that used to be fun that everybody liked and make it into something that only stiffy um stuffy people like because it, they think it makes them look cultured Make it bourgeois? Yeah, I mean, I don't know, I guess. Um, I think that probably has different meanings. I don't even know my idioms, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The point is, it's like people tend to associate things like that with... They, they consider it boring. Um, but the simple fact is, these tunes are instantly... These melodies are instantly recognizable. They're everywhere. And they are really good. They've mm -hmm. lasted because they've stayed popular because they're just good songs they're just fun like they who doesn't like think of like a whimsical christmas story every time they hear it never gets old it never and you, and that's how you know mayhem is happening right now because it's just this fast-paced christmas music yeah, 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 that's when Kevin McAllister is, you know, but putting nails on his staircases to catch the sticky bandits. Should we do a Home Alone watch for this? I don't know. Home, Alone, Home Alone's Russian, right? We can figure out yeah. something that makes it Russian. <laughs> uh, Russian torture technique, sure. There we go. <laughs> yeah, Macaulay Culkin's uh, Russian, right? Yeah. No, he was actually, Macaulay Culkin's actually a Russian immigrant. He was born um, Makalai Makolkovich. <laughs> there we go <laughs> um uh, anyway uh did here's my here's my takeaway reclaim classical music please because of a lot of a lot of it is really good yeah and i love using it on the show and mm -hmm. i try to use it as much as possible like it's royalty free yeah uh, well uh, i i enjoy using it on the show because at least it's, it's tunes you recognize and in the episode for we just released for oh fuck what was his name uh Polk the accursed i i mm -hmm. i used you know um prokofiev's battle on the ice freely on that one because guess what he was doing battling on the ice exactly. so it, it fit and it was you know we're gonna see the actual movie that goes to way down the line nice nice but you know speaking of future episodes you know we're not really taking a break for on episodes in patreon but just so you know what's happening with our power um, for January, we will be recording an episode with Sword, Sorcery, and Socialism about the book called We by Yevgeny Zamyatin. It is like a six-hour-long book on audiobook. It's pretty short. It is basically kind of like... Some people have compared it to like the precursor to that 
1984? Yeah. Yeah, 1984. Yeah, it's a precursor to 1984. And if you, unlike um, Aldous Huxley's book, um, Brave Good New World. world. Yeah. yeah, so it's, like, it's a precursor to that. And people argue, you know, whether Aldous Huxley actually took his references from Yevgeny Zamyatin or vice versa. But, you know, if Yevgeny Zamyatin being in the Soviet Union... We can say that Aldous Huxley copied mm. him. I have I have complex feelings on uh, Brave New World in 1984. But we're reading We, so that's and it's a, it's a nice short one. So that's in that's in January, and then in February, we're gonna be start we're, we're gonna be starting our Russian writers series. Nice. Yeah, we're gonna start with Pushkin, and that's gonna take however many episodes it needs to take. So strap mm. in because Pushkin's got a long. Not he's got a life that's for sure i don't have the time to judge the literary merits of his work but i could easily do a couple yeah and like yeah so like the the ranking is i I can just let you know we're going to base them off the reception you know how are they received in life and after death gonna go into compromat you know how scandalous were they were you know were they a literary bad boy a gambling drunkard yeah it's just Dostoevsky. <laughs> um, um, you know, how... Oh, they're know, just a total hippie peacenik like Tolstoy. Tolstoy's weird. We're going to cover that. Yeah, he's kind of weirdo, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we have the the ranking. We're going to do Bozhermoy. So Compromat and Bozhermoy won't change, but we're going to have reception. We'll find out the Russian word for that soon. Then we're going to have a rank that basically goes, how long is their longest work compared to War and Peace? Because War and Peace is a long-ass book. So... <laughs> We're going to see how long it's compared to that. And then is the that last... the longest work of Russian literature? Yes. Wait, it is? Yes. <laughs> Wait, how many, page, how many pages is it? Like uh, 1,300. I've read George R. R. Martin's uh, A Song of Ice and Fire. They're all like... But like in pages. a single book format. Yeah. 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 Um, each of those is like 1,000 pages. Yeah. We're, we're not reading War and Peace. Oh, God, no. Um, I've already read it, so I'm not going to reread it. <laughs> if anything, we're going to watch the BBC show, which is actually pretty good compared to it or just watch the russian film hmm. and then um the last the last category is how much do brendan and i like their you know what the book we choose to read for, for them so we yeah so basically reception you know blackmail how good you know what's the charisma you know were they charismatic did they look good because i wanted to do charisma because you know they're writers they how do they portray themselves you know how good did they look so that way you know base half the half the points on that yeah and then how the other half from that as well. Um, and for then, the record, I wanted to include a category on how young they died because I just assume they all die young. I mean, we, we can we can add points to that in the reception. Okay. Yeah. Dying young will definitely give a boost to their uh, their reception. That's oh, played yeah. out across history. Just ask Van Gogh. <laughs> yeah, and then base. Yeah, so reception, compromat, Moy, How long is it compared to War and Peace? And What's our opinion on one of the books? And we'll let you know in advance which book we choose. So, so if you want to read with us, mm-hmm. you know, once we start the episode, we're saying we're going to read the book. We're going to read this book by this person because I am guessing the Russian writers are going to take a lot longer than the Russian rulers to actually talk about in an episode format. Because lo and behold, we, you know, they're, we're starting in, G, in the 1800s. <laughs> we're going to have fun with that. Alrighty. So I wish you guys all a happy holiday. Mm-hmm. And we will see you in January with Asha and Katho. Nice. Do Sidanetovarishi. Vlash Prozdeit Parazitov. Peace.
Peace. Bring us some friggy pudding, because I'm freaking starving. Okay. Ready?